Now on RT Radio 1, Arts Tonight, presented by Vincent Woods. Hello and welcome to Arts Tonight. On this edition of the programme, Volume 5 of Art and Architecture of Ireland, the final volume of this landmark publication, 20th Century. Volume 5 of Art and Architecture of Ireland covers a multitude, 20th century art, art styles, genres and movement, the public and personal environments in which the work of artists is made and shown, art education, the media and the visual arts, politics, gender, as well as short essays relating to individual artists making up the content of this volume. And to look at some of the volume, I'm joined by its editors, Catherine Marshall and Peter Murray. Catherine and Peter, 20th Century, the fifth and final volume of this very ambitious series. As its editors, what was your starting point and what then emerged as your early aims and intentions for this volume? Catherine, you first. It already was clear that the 20th century would be a huge job. It's very different to all of the other volumes, really, because it wasn't media specific or discipline specific and at the same time we're dealing with both dead artists and an important early legacy and also with a lot of living artists and you know that's a bit of a Pandora's box actually. (laughs) We wanted to give a picture of Irish art in the 20th century. We didn't need actually to concentrate on artists because so many people had already done that for the ones who are now dead and for the living they nearly all have websites and large amounts of information lodged in their galleries and places. So we would just be repeating work that is already well done by other people. But what we were very clear about was that nobody was telling the story into which those artists' individual careers fitted. Deal with some of that. Pull it all together. Peter, a big job uh, to, to survey it and pull it all together. Walter Strickland had published his Dictionary of Irish Artists in 1913. There hadn't really been a comprehensive survey since. Theo Snoddy did an excellent uh, dictionary of 20th century Irish artists. Well, Theo Snoddy's work was meticulous and detailed. I don't think at any point did he give any sense of commentary or narrative, uh, as Catherine was saying, in relation to how these artists' lives, careers and works fitted into a pattern of contemporary art, or how they were influenced by their place in, in the overall story. So the combination of thematic essays and then a conventional dictionary approach of alphabetical artist entries, I think is brilliant in this case. Well, I would say that, I suppose, <laughs> but I, it was not my decision. It was a collective decision and it was arrived at with the advisory board and with, with, with the academy. And actually an early shift, which Peter has just reminded me about in conjunction with our advisory board, was to assert something that we used to say at IMA, but I'm not sure you know, how much we managed to implement it when I worked in him in the first decade, which was that we used to say we show art, not artists. And so as we looked at the structure and the material that we wanted to fit into our volume, so we have essays that are about surrealism, modernism, uh, postmodernism, anything that was big enough to make a splash in the history of Irish art. Our decision was actually to include those artists that we felt had made a difference to the particular practice that was their priority, so that in some way they contributed to the history of art in the century. 
Peter, is that almost inevitably a subjective business? I'm not sure that it's any more subjective than any other area of, of what you might broadly call the liberal arts in determining what poetry is excellent or literature, what short stories are excellent or films, documentaries. I suppose like, we, we all looked at the history of writing about Irish art that is already there and especially that writing that encompasses the 20th century. There is a huge tradition of very connoisseurial writing and we were keen that while that model had served us well in the early years and we couldn't have gone in the directions we can now go in without some of that spade work which is done by people like Anne Cruikshank and Desmond Fitzgerald but we were also very sure that that only gave one very beautiful but very restricted picture of Irish art so one of the things we wanted to do was make sure that that picture was fleshed out in other directions and then we wanted to look at the impact of colonisation on Irish art, which is something that the connoisseurial writers had really not dealt with at all. And, and so just to give you an example, which you're probably very familiar with, in the introduction to one of their great books, Anne Cruikshank and the Knight apologised for Irish art not being as good as English art. This is their watercolours book. They say, you know, there are no Girtons and Sandbys in Irish art, but there are nonetheless very fine artists, without ever looking at the traditions that fostered one group rather than the other. Or what we did want to say is that art doesn't happen in a vacuum. It happens as a result of a whole multiplicity of factors and we want to make sure that they are all referenced. And the aftermath of colonisation, Irish government narrow attitudes that said... We don't want art if it is Anglo-Irish because it's too much like the old colonial school, if it's Protestant because that's linked to the old colonial school, if it's too international because it doesn't allow us to look at the emphasis on nationalism that we want to encourage in Ireland. We wanted to look at the question that Lucy Cotter raises. Why are there no great Irish artists? And of course, there are. Peter, were were there particular issues or areas you wanted to make sure were dealt with comprehensively in in this volume? I certainly set out with the aspiration of saying, oh, this is marvellous. Now there'll be an opportunity to highlight artists who've been overlooked and forgotten, perhaps, or artists whose work was very powerful and interesting, but whose careers might have been short-lived. And even if the reference to that artist is just one or two sentences. For me, the index is like the key to the volume. It's there that, you you know, you, you find references to artists. We'll move on to focus on some of its content and consider some themes in more detail. The many artists referenced, as you said, have their own entry in alphabetical order from Francis Bacon to Anne and Jack Yates. One of those artists is Martin Gale. I met him recently at the Taylor Gallery in Dublin, where his work has been shown over many years. Uh, both of my parents had, a, had a, a, an interest in art. They were susceptible to it. They bought the old painting. My mother had been brought up well, partly in Connemara and partly in East Galway, but her father was a friend of the Belfast painter Charles Lamb, and she had a number of his paintings. Her father had 25 of them, in fact, but uh, we had a number of them at home. It was always part of the family thing, you know, these... And um, my father was a, a good... Uh, amateur painter. He spent summer holidays. He always did a painting while we were on the beach. And um, his mother was also a good amateur painter. So it was there, you know, the, the atmosphere was conducive. Newbridge College was a rugby school. 
the education system was geared towards um, producing professional people. So they, they had a strong line in accountants and uh, solicitors and so on. But a very significant man called uh, Father Henry Flanagan, he was a good painter, but he was chiefly a carver, sculptor. He did the stations for the cross for the new church and so on. And he had a reputation outside of the immediate environs, he had a reputation in, you know, nationwide as a, as a clerical sculptor, I suppose. You know. So he was an influence. Anybody who wasn't particularly geared to or interested in rugby or particularly good at rugby, was ended up, he, he zoomed in on them. You know. And was there a difference, incidentally, between uh, the teaching of art in Ireland and England because you moved schools between the two countries? Uh, I would say there was, actually. They were more experimental in England. Even. Now, admittedly, we were only there in, in uh, primary school level. How then, out of that environment, did you decide to apply to and attend art college? Well, don't forget now, I was a teenager during the 1960s. There was so much happening, there was an awful lot going on um, in terms of creativity. There was an explosion of an explosion of imagery, really. I mean, you know, from al- album covers to carrier bags had images on them. It was just, you, you really felt there was an excitement about it. I remember at the time, actually when I was 17, 18, feeling that you're in the middle of something that's going on here and I want to be involved with it. At the same time, art schools were important in the 60s. They were A lot of, say, the best bands were coming out of art schools. So the art school seemed like the place to be. And I think I started probably for all the wrong reasons. I, had, uh, I wanted to be an art student, actually, you know, and grow my hair and get paint in my jeans. And those really facile, you know, reasons. But when I got in there, and more or less as soon as I, you know, got the smell of turpentine, the die was cast. And it was interesting at that age to discover so definitely what you want to do. You know, so really once I started in art school, that was it. I mean, when I started in the College of Art, it was run along some sort of 19th century principles. The RHA, actually, funny enough, had the... Uh, it was their sort of ethos, in a way, and it was a very rigid... For example, you could you had to spend, I think, two years drawing from an antique statue before you could get into the life room, even. So it was really old-fashioned, and there was no real excitement there. But as, on my second year there, the, uh, the revolution started... Um, and I was took part in it, no, not as a leader, but as a foot soldier in the revolution. But what it did was it it freed us up. We stopped going to classes. You know, there were sit-ins, lockouts, protest marches, the whole bit, and I participated in all of those. But painting was the whole thing. Suddenly, we weren't going to lectures. We weren't going to you know history classes or ceramics or something that we were. We could just hole up in the studios upstairs and paint and paint and paint. And that's how I spent my time. In terms of, of making a, a working career, was there a particular opportunity or breakthrough moment that, that really made all the difference? Being accepted for the Irish Exhibition of Living Art. I remember I, I was in a pea factory in Essex canning peas, when, which you had to do every year to make enough money to do the next year. And I got a, a, a postcard that said, two of your paintings have been accepted in living art, and they've both been sold. So it was into the personnel officer, and it was a, you know, take your job situation. <laughs> and um, I was back home, and that was it. That was, it seemed to be, okay, that's it. I'm, you know, I felt now I was being taken seriously as an artist, and somebody that actually I'd never met had bought the paintings. So that was a huge moment. 
And of course, we're here in the in the tailor. I, I wonder what has it meant to have this gallery, that almost line of necessity for an artist, you know, to have an outlet and a consistent one. There are two ways. There, there are people who don't have anything to do with galleries and, and paddle their own canoe. But I think the, the gallery system has worked very well for me. I'm a, I'm a gallery man, if you like. They will find, I suppose, outlet for your work that you will never, never find yourself. They give you a veneer of sort of um, acceptability to you, for, for, for one thing. And the, the Taylor Gallery have been particularly supportive. I mean, they see you over a rough patch, and there were plenty of them. John Taylor... Is it important for you, almost for the ethos of the gallery, that you remain loyal to the artist who comes through the doors as a young artist with talent and that you foster what they do over decades? Well, it, it might change a little bit from artist to artist. <laughs> artists can be quite temperamental, you know. But with Martin, it has been very steady. It has been very, very good. I think it's been fairly mutual. I'd say more beneficial to ourselves than Martin, to be honest, but it's been very good. The weathering of recessions, I presume that is a constant challenge. When I started in the Dawson Gallery, one of the first things I was told is to try and save money, and I was told that there will be always circles. So from the very start, we've always been inclined not to spend everything, to try and hold and try and weather and not overextend, you know. What's the history uh, of, of the tailor, and, and what landscape does it link into in terms of, of the galleries and history of, of art exhibitions in Dublin? I started working in the Dawson Gallery in 1964, and I worked there until 77, uh, when Leo Smith died, a proprietor. And Leo Smith actually worked for Waddington. He started his own gallery in 1944. I don't know when Waddington started, but he worked for Waddington for quite a few years before leaving. And do you have a fairly consistent set of potential buyers? It would be a small little circle now. I mean, during the boom time, we had a huge circle. Like everything in the boom times is just all crazy. But it's like a lot of people were burnt, paid a lot of money. Because auctions sort of houses, they shot the prices way up. And we sort of stayed behind the auction houses, but still they were very, very high. And when the thing collapsed, a lot of people felt sort of slightly burnt. But you're, you're in a position to, to keep going. Just about. <laughs> Artist Martin Gale there, and you also heard John Taylor of the Taylor Gallery in Dublin. Catherine, looking under the letter A in the volume, and subjects are listed alphabetically, as you said, by subject matter, an early entry is on the art market through the century. What did you discover here about how that art market evolved? The art market essay was written by an art historian who's now living in Australia, Jane Eckett. So she looked at the importance of the sale room as a place in which to show contemporary art throughout the 20th century through people like uh, Charles Tyndall, Gatti, sale rooms, and later on people like um, Daniel McEgan and Combridge's The Picture Framers and Gorries, of course. They used their picture framing or workshops as places where they also showed contemporary art because that's lots of contemporary artists went in to have their work framed with them for a long time the work that the public had a chance to see by contemporary artists was in those contexts but then over the 20th century the great houses in Ireland started to break up um, the big auction houses began to take an interest in what was coming out of Ireland especially as the market in England 
thinned out a bit. There was huge interest and growing values attributed to contents of Irish great houses. I think so, it was, was it in the 1970s? I know this is referenced in, in the volume. Uh, there was Gabriel Williams writing in the Irish Times about a, an auction in, the, in one of those houses and talking about its sadness and its splendour. People were faced with, you know, huge taxes, with death duties, with upkeep of those houses without the old regime to support them any longer, which is why, I mean, for all kinds of political reasons, those houses were proving more and more difficult to sustain. Wasn't the um, the dealer Victor Waddington of particular yes. importance in, in the early part of, of the 20th century in, in promoting the work of contemporary affordable artists like Sean Keating and Moira Barry? Victor Waddington was wonderful. His own background is very interesting. He was a professional boxer. There aren't too many people who come from boxing become artists. Sean Scully might have something to say about that. But they don't often become the sort of polished dealer and seller of the artwork. Um, But Victor Waddington did. He wanted to help artists to make art. So sometimes he paid them stipends to keep them going while they made it. And then he would take first refusal on a certain amount of the work they made. But in order to make that pay, he also sold the work of artists who were very saleable and whose work appealed to a more middle class, civil servant class, who were taking over from the old state. He sold the work of people like Moira Barry, who did little flower paintings, in order to pay for supporting Jack Yates, later Colin Middleton and Daniel O'Neill and Gerard Dillon. But it shows how important the Myra Barrys are too, because without them, Waddington couldn't have helped the others. And then, of course, the other thing that Waddington did that was new in Ireland was he promoted their work internationally. He brought several exhibitions of Irish art to the United States and he produced a book of the artists in his gallery in 1940. Art collectors then is, of course, also really important in all of this. In Ireland in the 20th century, collecting is interesting because there was virtually no state collecting. There was a subvention to the National Gallery of Ireland to buy art which had been granted in the old days under the British government in the 1860s. And they gave something like £1,600 in the 1860s for buying artwork. The Irish state took over the running of the National Gallery, but they did not change that until 1938, significantly into the life of the free state. And then they doubled the amount of money, big act of generosity, which is still tiny money since it's the only state money going into the buying of art outside of some work that the OPW was able to buy even then. But in 1939, the war broke out. So what happened? They went, shrank that money right back to the original sum. So it fell to private collectors. I mean, the first major one that we all talk about had to be Hugh Lane because Hugh Lane was so generous with it and he had such a vision and a mission about what he wanted to do with it. And of course, it fell foul of the establishment. He didn't manage to give his collection in the way that he wanted, but it did then stimulate Irish governments to become very nationalistic about it. You know, this is our art. Why is it over there? Why is it in Britain and not here? It meant that at least if they didn't manage to right that problem in relation to Hugh Lane, when they were offered other collections like the John and Gertrude Hunt collection or the Alfred Bight collection or the um, Chester Beatty collection, they were much more anxious not to get it wrong a second or a third time round. But then I suppose the other collectors who gave a lead as distinct from the regular bit of buying that was done by the, the Irish middle classes, there would have been people like Gordon Lambert who made it his mission in life as well. And he modelled himself a bit on Basil Goulding 
in the end, I think Gordon's collection far exceeded Basil Goulding's collection, actually. And he and Basil Goulding and other people set up the Contemporary Irish Art Society to promote the buying of contemporary art as well. So they're really important. A subject closely related to the art market is that of the income of artists. In writing about it and looking at it, you highlight the absence of any scientific data before the mid-century. The Arts Council did nothing to give money to artists until the directorship of Colm O'Brien. Colm O'Brien came in as a man with a mission to improve the um, living conditions of Irish artists. Well, Charlie Hawhey was a good, willing ear on this one. Charlie's advisors came up with the scheme for Estona and with various other grants and bursaries to help artists. But I mean, a really interesting thing in all of that is that you know, Charlie Hawhey had famously brought in the tax relief for artists scheme, which made Ireland a really interesting place internationally. But almost no Irish visual artists benefited from that scheme. There are a handful by the end of the century, but in the beginning, not a single artist earned enough money to pass the normal thresholds anyway. So giving them an exemption was meaningless. And so what I discovered when I did a bit of research on this was the way in which artists' incomes were significantly below the income of the average worker towards the end of the 20th century. And so the Arts Council, to its great credit, commissioned a number of reports on this. One, the Richards Report in the 70s, an Irish marketing survey in 1980, and then big jump in 2010, a report on the living conditions of artists. By 2010, what had happened was the living conditions for the average worker had improved to the point that they were earning significantly more in 2010 than most artists. The other lovely statistic is that even then, four out of five artists said, if given the choice, that they would not change what they did. They'd still want to make art. We owe them. (laughs) Apart from commercial galleries, one place the public did get to see contemporary international art on a significant scale for the first time was when the first Ruska exhibition opened in Dublin in 1967. Brenda Moore-McCann has written the volume entry on the Ruska exhibition and I spoke to her recently about them. She first told me why Rusk was so different to anything else that went before it. The main issue is that it was different in terms of the scale. Most importantly, it captured the imagination of artists in a really dramatic way. I'm still meeting artists who say, oh, I remember that, Rusk. I interviewed Corbin Walker recently, who was a child when his mother was very involved with the... uh, Dorothy Walker was involved. And he was able to actually tell me specific works that he remembered Certainly when you look at the works uh, that he chose to be interested in and the work he's doing himself, you can see a direct line. Alan Phelan is another young artist who's done uh, making a name for himself. You know, he was enormously impressed by what he saw in Rusk. I think somebody like Richard Long very much impressed him. It became almost something of a national event in Ireland, didn't it? Apart from newspaper columns, you also had the letter pages teeming with letters about art. It was amazing. The fact that Irish art were not admitted to the first two Rusks caused outrage. The only Irish work, associated Irish work in the first Rusk was a work 
that belonged to the collection of Gordon Lambert by a, a South American art, artist called Soto, Curvisum Immaterialis. But the other thing that interests me very much about them is the time, the timing of them, because they happen at enormously critical time in art, where art theory changed dramatically. This, of course, affected Ireland because eventually art colleges were teaching this, uh, these theories and affecting the way artists work, the way art, art is defined. Uh, what's the role of the artist? How does an artist relate to community? It's not just museums and all the things that we now, the new art forms that we have, the expansion of art forms from painting and sculpture, which is all it was, to installation, film, video art, they were all represented in the Rusks. So some people saw their first video art at Rusk. Some people saw their, their first installation art in Rusk. They were. They are undoubtedly the most important event to happen in Irish art, I would say, in the 20th century. The way the work was shown was very particular. Patrick Scott uh, came along and completely redesigned uh, the interior with beautiful white uh, cotton and muslin on the ceilings and on, on the walls. There was special lighting installed. And then the other thing that really struck a lot of the visiting critics was that uh, the works were hung Cecil King mostly did this, or will he helped James Johnson Sweeney. They were hung back to back freely, hanging freely in space, so that the visitor could walk in and around them and could make a kind of an association with this one and the one beside it or the one that would catch your eye down there. The catalogue, not to try and help the public in trying to explain how contemporary art was working. The attitude at the time was let the work speak for itself. The name Rusk, as it was almost gone into the lexicon of, of art history in Ireland. Where does the name actually come from? They wanted an Irish name, short, so that it, it would be pronounceable internationally. Rusk, a battle cry, a gleam in the eye, but also the poetry of vision. And they selected the poetry of vision that that would fit in with their intentions and the premises behind the kind of art that they were interested in. Brenda Moore-McCann talking with me about the famous Rusk exhibitions. And I suppose while the Rusk exhibitions had a vital role to play in introducing many people to international art, it also could be said to have had spurred collectors to look at buying more contemporary art than had been the case before. Now, Dublin and the other regions of Ireland, or perhaps Dublin versus the regions, is a significant topic in relation to 20th century Irish art. Interestingly, it was a county other than Dublin that first appointed an arts officer in 1985 when Kay Sheehy was appointed arts officer for County Clare. Today, each county has its own designated arts officer and staff. Moran Connell has been arts officer for County Leash for over two decades and spoke to Arts Tonight about the role the Regional Arts Office has played in opening up a kind of democratisation of the visual arts over that time. You know, I arrived in as a young person in my mid-twenties into Leash County Council, uh, hot on receiving the job as Arts Officer. I was a Do- I'm a Dublin person, so that was a big change, coming into a rural municipality. And I nearly ran out the door the same day, to be quite honest. I was sandwiched between sheep dipping, third level grants and housing applications. Uh, I came under the remit of the, the, the then county secretary and county manager. I was very fortunate that I had access to the top, had the ear 
of senior management at all time. That has been a change as well that's happened. You know, there's a lot more layers now in local authorities. You have directors of services. You have now what we call the the chief executive is the county manager, formerly in that position. Uh, And then you had... uh, a lot of other things such as uh, looking at social policy and community development, that is something that arose in the late 90s in the councils as well, where they took a very structured look at those areas. So I came with my strengths first. I was warm and I was open and interested in people and I enjoyed the countryside. Cut and thrust, dealing with councillors, uh, people thinking you painted because you're the arts officer, even the language, arts, art. And I suppose I start with what I knew, because I came from an education background, completing the arts administration course in Belfield. Would you believe that the first things I probably did were arranging art workshops, bringing professional artists in and giving them the opportunity, advertising them and inviting the public to to bring their children to come and engage with an artist. So it would have started off very simply there moving into maybe applying for arts in residence in Leash, or helping people to apply for artists in schools. And then I think um, a very important uh, thing that I did for the county was a symposium in McKeown Stone. We um, have one of the foremost uh, limestone yards in the country, in Stradbally County Leash. So I organised a stone symposium very important sculptors came to work and stay in Leash for a number of months and they were given as much limestone as they wanted and the brief was to to make a piece of work for each of the principal towns in the county so that was very very important getting to know artists organizing exhibitions all very small small stuff in a way in that it was in the county council buildings you'd have your opening reception people would come have a glass of wine admire the work buy the work perhaps if it was for sale most artists had left the county simply because of educational reasons or opportunities Kathy Carmen Michael Boren uh, for example they were based in Temple Bar Studios when I came first so that was lovely to draw upon them whenever possible and there were people there was a Dutch artist now who was living and she she was quite an important artist Mitzi Gerson and she was living in Leash when I arrived and quite exotic because we didn't have very many foreigners living in our midst at that time as house prices increased more people moved in Jock Nicol and Caroline Conway. They were a very important point of contact for me too because they were around the same age as myself as well and working professionally as artists, making art, selling art, teaching uh, whenever whenever the possibilities arose. We called our, our last arts plan uh, Sustain, Nurture and Grow and that's really what it's about. You know, that we, none of this would happen without artists. They are the centre of this. We need to be very, very careful and mindful of the support that needs to be given to our artists. When I first uh, hosted exhibitions in Port Leisha, I had these large white boards and they basically were attached one to the other. So you had kind of a V shape, if you follow me, and you basically banged a few nails into the wood and hung up your your work and then filled the holes then afterwards uh, with polyfilla. I was trying to cover as many areas as I possibly could and I knew I needed to address the visual arts. And travelling to Dublin, 
maybe my first time driving as well, and the horror and fear of it. Uh, up on the up on the no motorway, of course, up th- through County Kildare and kind of getting lost. How do you get lost? But I did, and eventually arriving into the Arts Council, and how accommodating and warm uh, the people I met were. I remember Cornelia McCarthy was in there at the time, and her handing me books on hanging shows, how to hang an exhibition. There was the the John Hunt book that was brought, or the late John Hunt on ha- uh, handle with care. Himself and Rory O'Queeve were so warm and generous. And literally it was about hanging a show. And that was your education. The book, the work of art, the wall, and you did your best. Like My practice has evolved over the, the years. Like I'm nearly 24 years in the job now. And I've come to learn how, how to do it. And um, in my case, you know, I, I polished it off then a little bit with looking at an MA in curation, and which I did through the IADT. But neither here nor there, it's really just about, it's about doing it and experiencing it. But so many more people understand now about hanging work. I mean, even in the Dunhamays, the, the technical person is so adept at hanging work and his, he's, he's, he's famous for it in, in how quickly he does it and how well he does it. Maureen McConnell talking in Leash Art House in Stradbally. Peter, the support for artists mentioned there by Maureen McConnell. You've looked at artist studios and residencies in detail for this volume. Could you talk to us about that support and how those structures have evolved across the country over the, as well as the, the later decades of the 20th century? The main thing about artist studios is the way in which they evolved. There were some that were generated by artists themselves. Other cases, later, towards the end of the century, the Arts Council, uh, having responded to those reports that Catherine mentioned, understood the need for professionalising the arts. And so you have then initiatives which are much more Arts Council-sponsored, such as the fire station studios. And then you've got some that are combinations, such as uh, the National Sculpture Factory in Cork, where it's Arts Council, City Council, and a group of artists, Maud Cotter and, and Vivian Roach and others who came together. You, you have extraordinarily successful models of enterprises there, I must say, because the resilience and longevity of these, I, I think, is a testament to the vision of their founders. It probably began in, in the sense that we know it nowadays in 1981 with Temple Bar Galleries being founded by Jenny, Jenny Houghton. That, in those days, was a former knitting factory, incredibly cold, very basic. And then as Temple Bar, as a district evolved under government aid and EU aid, Temple Bar was completely rebuilt. Outside Dublin, there was far less support, and so artists such as the Backwater Studios in Cork had to go quite a long time in similar conditions before they then were brought under the wing of City Council, Arts Council. I think in those decades you had extraordinarily successful models. What resulted? They have been world-class facilities. So it's likely demoralising to see with the present sort of, you know, in the recent e- economic recession, withdrawing almost from, from that professionalising sort of a sense in which people should volunteer or go back on false schemes or in the, in the same way there, I think there has been a, quite a significant regression back to the art world that I was familiar with in, in, in the early 80s. But nonetheless, those studios and the residency facilities also 
some of which are enterprises founded by very idealistic visionary people such as Ballon Glen, the Model Arts Centre in, in, in Sligo, the Sirius and Cove. The diversity of these artist residencies and studios and it's, it's lovely to see, you know, the Heinrich Ball Cottage mm. illustrated in the book. Because throughout Ireland now, you have Kilraelig and Kerry, uh, Lochbora. The Toronto Glossary Centre was again as a uh, centre for so much. Well, of course, that was initially mainly literature, but then they added studios to it, I think, in response to demand from artists. You know, Ireland. It's striking when you say it mm. as you realise how much there is. Uh, you've also written in the volume about, I suppose, artist support groups that, that, that emerged over the decades. And in the process of that, the professionalisation of, of the working environment. Everything is, is interlinked. And, and when you were talking earlier about collectors, you know, what I suddenly thought of was the founding of the Irish Management Institute and the founding members of the Irish Management Institute uh, and their vision, which linked with then an extended vision amongst the senior levels in banking. And so Bank of Ireland and AIB both began to build up collections. Basil Goulding, Margaret Downs, Don Carroll, leaders in collecting. They were absolutely at the top of managerial positions in major companies and semi-state bodies. So it's at that level in the 70s, 80s and 90s that you really had a groundswell of collecting and banks, the National Bank commissioned Michael Farrell to do murals for its headquarters and he went, had to go to Ardmore Studios to get a space big enough. Robert Balla helped him and um, you know, that's way back in the early 70s. Those days were optimistic days And what you had was that groundswell of economic wealth, which resulted from from the uh, good times of the 1960s. So, So we're still getting the echoes of that. At that point, you have a new vision, one which is indigenous to Ireland, replacing the older, more established or Victorian academies and associations and societies, which in itself, it's important to remember that people forget that those organisations very often emerged out of sort of William Morris, arts and crafts, Marxist-inspired thinking about the social benefits of art to society and the importance of arts and education in the late 19th century. But by the 1920s, 30s and 40s, some of them had sort of run their course. And so in 1950s, suddenly you have a new, a new change. Then after the 60s, you have a professionalisation, a recognition that artists are entitled to be treated as any other worker in society. And, you know, they're, they're not, it's not just eccentrics up in the hillside, they're actually essential to the overall economy. And, and the recent years have, have really demonstrated that. A traditional picture was of the arts being irrational somehow, intuitive, instinctive, and finance was rational based on common sense and self-interest. The past 10, ten years has, has exposed this thinking as being completely topsy-turvy. For those who really understand how society works, I think visual arts and culture is increasingly recognised and seen as as being a a driver, not a follower, not peripheral. Mentioning, as you did there, William Morris and the arts and crafts movement brings us to design. And in this volume, Linda King and Lisa Godson write about design and material culture across the 20th century. I spoke with Linda King about Irish design and its many different categories. We tried to be as expansive as possible um, within 10,000 words. So the areas that are covered are craft, graphic design, fashion design, design for stage and screen, animation, industrial design, but also an area that we'd call material culture more broadly, which is the design of objects, images too. 
When you write about the the history and of the development of of design within the new Irish state, you you know you point out that we were different. Ireland was different from its neighbours in its approach to design because we, I suppose, we were so immersed in building a national identity mm-hmm. in the in the first half of the twentieth century. I think a lot of design was indirectly state sponsored because of the emphasis on the building of infrastructure in the early years of the Free State. So projects like Ardna Crusher, for instance, the big hydroelectrical station, um, brought Siemens expertise, but also so there was a desire, obviously, to indicate the change of political sovereignty. So the design for coins, stamps, paper currency were really, really important in signalling that the political state had changed. So design became very important in that context. So you have the sculptor, the British sculptor Percy Metcalf, designing the first Free State coins in 1928. Belfast-born John Lavery designing the Free State currency. But then there's other interventions, the painting of post boxes from red to green is a very, very powerful political statement. It is part of the broader visual culture that tells people on the street that things have changed substantially. And Erlingus then, I think as well, was was very significant in terms of, of promoting design. Nerlingus from the 1950s indirectly started importing Dutch design expertise into the country through its advertising agency, Sun Advertising, because it was about to expand its network across Europe. It had plans for a transatlantic route as far back as 1948 and it needed good graphic designers to actually promote that that agenda. So the company needed posters to advertise. And it was also one of the first companies that um, had a really strong corporate identity system from 1962 onwards. 1974 is probably the corporate identity system that most people would recognise, the famous stemless shamrock. But that was very much in line with what other European airlines were doing at the time. It's close. Lufthansa has the crane and sans serif typography Aer Lingus had the shamrock sans serif typography it was it was a pattern that was replicated within the industry but Aer Lingus was huge in promoting Irish design it also was big in terms of promoting Irish fashion design through the design of cabin crew uniforms Nelly Mulcahy Ibi Jorgensen Paul Costello all produced uh, uniform designs for Aer Lingus because Ireland didn't naturally grow design expertise. We weren't an industrialised country by the turn of the 20th century. Um, The Industrial Revolution um, largely bypassed us. And without industrial manufacturing, the design industries didn't grow organically. So we weren't making enough products to be packaged and and to be advertised. So by the early years of the 20th century, there needs to be interventions to bring design expertise into Ireland, into a situation where design hasn't grown organically. Um, So that was one of the reasons why Dutch design expertise was brought in to work on the Aer Lingus account. And the expertise was brought from KLM, who were the Royal Dutch um, Airline, who were really an exemplar in terms of graphic design at the time. Um, after the Scandinavian report that was initiated by Chorus um, Trochtola under um, William H. Walsh, which was very scathing about the um, standards of Irish design and education, there was a, a consensus that expertise needed to be imported into the country again. And that came in the form of the Kilkenny Design Workshops, which were founded in 1963 under the auspices of um, William H. Walsh, because he saw that design was integral to the development of the Irish economy, as did Sean Lamass. Sean Lamass saw it very clearly in ter- terms of tourism development as well. Um, Aer Lingus was the company he founded in 1936. He said it was his proudest achievement. Um, and he was very aware that design and economics had a really um, important relationship. 
Post and Telegraphs, OPW, Telecom, Erin, all of those logos were designed by Kilkenny Design and those corporate identity systems. They also packaged a number of, of goods that people would be very familiar with. Chef sauces, stag cider were all, were all packaged <laughs> in Kilkenny. Other projects that people would be familiar with would be Gerard Tyler's yellow aluminium brusker waste paper bins that were seen all over, all over the country. Kilkenny Design had a huge impact on the ordinary lives of everyday people in Ireland. Linda King there is speaking to me about design and material culture in Ireland and its development in the 20th century. Catherine Marshall, the, the, the movement of artists, of people into and out of Ireland, again, is considered in, in this volume. You look at the subject in some detail and reference artists as varied as Sidney Nolan, Patricia McKenna, Huey O'Donoghue, Jack Yates and others. There's a huge story here that covers many movements and many, many geographies. Yeah, I was thinking of the word geographics. There's no such thing, but but it is graphic and it is geographical. They went everywhere and they're very much a part of the story of Irish art. It's a small island. It's a very porous country. If we are to in any way attempt to be comprehensive in documenting the history of Irish art, we have to look at those people who, I use the phrase because I was looking for a definition of an Irish artist and I came across one from Declan McGonigal where he said that he viewed Irish artists abroad as those people who took responsibility for their Irishness. Um, Now that could mean Irishness over a couple of generations even and I'm mindful of that because recently in New York I met some of the Gorilla Girls and one of the Gorilla Girls is a regular visitor to Ireland because her family are Irish. Everything about the way she works instantly connected with me because of that Irishness. But Sidney Nolan would be another example of that and I think Sidney Nolan's desire to tell the story of Australia in his art was just like our need at the very same time to tell the story of Ireland because we never had that opportunity before and Nolan told the story of Irish Australia. And then there were lovely things like that wonderful project by Patricia McKenna up in Cavan. She just was asked to do a public art project by Cleena Shaffrey and she decided, having seen this deserted cottage in Cavan full of things that people had just literally stood up and walked away from to try to draw attention to that by gathering together objects that symbolised their movement away from home and the loss to home and the letters from abroad and so on. Geraldine O'Reilly did the same kind of thing, documenting her own family's um, emigration to the United States and the letters they wrote home and the emigrants' bags and the gifts and the clothes home and all of that kind of thing. And then there was this beautiful project much more recently by Cathy Prendergast who looked at what the experience was like for those who went. And so she's an Irish artist who now lives most of the year in London and is married to an English artist and has children, you know, have a foot in both countries. And Cathy was very aware of the loneliness and isolation that you feel when you're separated from home. She looked at America. She did this wonderful map of the United States where she just documented all the places that are called lost. Lost hope, horizon, home even. And she highlighted those areas where 
people had named the towns and villages that they settled in across the continent of the United States. And that's just incredibly powerful and yeah, beautiful. Yeah, really evocative. Peter, many formal exhibitions have, have taken place along subjects relating to, to art and the diaspora. You were involved, I know, with this 0044 exhibition. What was the impetus behind that exhibition and, and what did it contain? Uh, that exhibition was uh, shown at, at a couple of venues in the United States, including PS1 and the Albright Knox Museum. And PS1 is now part of the Museum of Modern Art in New York. So that was a a tremendous opportunity run by Alana Heiss. And uh, the 0044 exhibition was given the two floors of this uh, huge building. There were 20 artists in this exhibition, including Andrew Carney, Elizabeth McGill, Leighton Cook, Cathy Prendergast, who Catherine's been Mm -hmm. talking about, Tina O'Connell, Anne Tallentire, John Carson, and and Ailish O'Connell, and many others. That exhibition was based upon the realisation that just came to me after years of looking at contemporary Irish art. And in spite of many of the press releases and feel-good sound bites that were issuing forth from various state agencies, I was involved with the Cultural Relations Committee. We had to select Irish artists to represent Ireland at Venice Biennale, São Paulo Biennale. And you'd meet once or twice a year and consult and extend out to the the regions and invite groups of curators to meet together to discuss uh, who, who might be represented, appoint commissioners of curators. In that process, it became really obvious that the people who were headlining Ireland internationally, very often their their telephone had a 0044 prefix. And you had to say, exactly what is happening in this country? Are the state supports and the much vaunted professionalisation of the arts, is that reflected in how artists themselves perceive. Now, many artists remain in Ireland. And the nice thing to record is that 0044 seemed to just uh, kind of happen at a moment. So Maud Cotter, who was then in London, has returned to work and live in, in Ireland. Eilish O'Connell also. A number of the artists who were then emigres, if you like, have actually settled in Ireland. And that's very reassuring because there was that moment, you know, about 1997, 98, when I thought the press releases are not telling me the truth. People are still voting with their feet. Emigration is still an important factor, as it had been for Daniel MacLeese, for James Barry, for Irish artists through the centuries. And I think Emma has been very important in that. Also, of course, the Crawford Art Gallery, Limerick, Model Nyland and those other institutions that have come together to raise the standard that we heard about in the interview where installation of exhibitions, the spaces, the way in which art is shown has been transformed in Ireland. It's very rare now that you come across the sort of installations. The nail in the wall. Exactly, (laughs) that we were used to. And the technical staff and the art transporters, people whose names are never mentioned, you know, like Tony McGuinness and others, they have been a bedrock upon which the, the arts have been professionalised. What are your, your hopes and ambitions, in a sense, for, for this volume? I would like Irish people to realise that that old cliche that's been trotted around forever about visual illiteracy, because we are such great writers and talkers and everything else, I don't want to take away from the writing and the talking. I'm really proud of that. But actually, all along, this is not a new discovery. There were artists who were as good as the writers. So there was Eileen Gray, who did take responsibility for her Irishness. There were people who never left this country, but struggled to get people to pay attention to what they did. 
now that there is greater visibility, there's more education, there is more, uh, they've more of a chance to show what they do. There are artists now like Dorothy Cross and Cathy Prendergast, whom we've mentioned already, and Willie Doherty, who are sought after all over the world. They never stop. And there's, there's a younger generation, the Claire Langans and the, you know, I could go on forever, Jared Byrne, Jackie Irvine. We are going to be so excited about them. Peter, is that how, more or less how you see it as well? When you've got art writers like Joyce, Beckett, Casey and Yeats, you will find through the 20th century many artists gravitated to those and indeed in the history of Irish art, continental artists, American artists often were drawn to Ireland primarily by literary figures. So, I mean, I, I know people came from the United States attracted by Yeats and then discovered visual art I do believe that at its core, the vision of Anne Cruikshank, the Knight of Glynn and other chroniclers of Irish art was motivated by the same impulse that we mentioned earlier and arose out of that late 19th century impulse to celebrate craftsmanship, to celebrate um, the achievements of, in some cases, very down-to-earth people. 80% of what they documented is, is quite down-to-earth art and as, as well as the, the hive and fine art. What, what they did was they established at least the basics, a catalogue, a canon of what can be talked about as Irish art. And that work has proceeded. I completely agree with Catherine. I think that the it has been much more to do with a, I won't call it a failure, just a lack of push on the part of institutions such as museums and others in the early part of the 20th century to allow that false truth to become established, which is that there was no visual arts or there was a poor visual arts tradition in Ireland. Earlier, Brenda Moore McCann unapologetically said that Rusk was the most important thing to have happened in Irish art in the 20th century. When you look at the enormous amount of material covered in this volume, I wonder if (laughs) either of you would care to say what you think has been particularly important. Catherine. I'd say there were three peaks in the 20th century. There was the first one was Hugh Lane and the the first municipal gallery in 1908. I think the second one was definitely Rosk. I think Brenda's absolutely right. And I think the third one is Ime in its first decade. Whereas I think Rosk brought the outer world into Ireland. It didn't bring Ireland back out. I think Emma um, started that one. And then, of course, the work in the Crawford and other places around the country. Peter. I agree with Catherine. I'd like to add Eva in Limerick, a thing that whenever I encounter it in any form, I'm always very impressed with the way it resonates within... It was never cosseted. I do very definitely have a sense in which Rosk was um, delivered from above. For me, the visual arts at their best are very often things that come up, you know, the grass that comes up through the cracks in the concrete. It is very much uh, something that sprouts up with enormous enterprise and, you know, invigorates in a way that is, to me, wholly admirable. I suppose that there should always be cracks in concrete and mm-hmm. and the grass and the flowers and all that, that, that comes mm-hmm. through. And I suppose, again, uh, we see that very clearly in this book. Many thanks to all the contributors to this edition of the programme. Catherine Marshall, Peter Murray, Martin Gale, Murray Connell, Brenda Moore-McCann and Linda King. The five-volume series Art and Architecture of Ireland is published for the Royal Irish Academy and the Paul Mellon Centre by Yale University Press. And in all August, there will be another chance to hear the short series of programmes Arts Tonight made on the various volumes since their publication. 
Meanwhile, from next week, I'll be introducing a selection of some of the programmes we broadcast during this season of Arts Tonight before a new season of the programme begins in the autumn. Also this autumn, I hope you can join us at this year's Dublin Theatre Festival where I'll be hosting a public critical interview with playwright Conor McPherson to coincide with the Irish premiere of his play Night Alive at the Gaiety Theatre. From me, Vincent Woods, thank you for listening. Arts Tonight is presented by Vincent Woods and produced by Cleanan the Anloon.